no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Philemon, verse 16. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. To understand the meaning of the message of Philemon, we have to reconstruct from the letter of Philemon the circumstances under which, uh, in which the letter is engaged. Right? So we have to reconstruct the situation to see how oh, that's what this letter is saying in the midst of that. So many of you perhaps have studied this passage, and if so, I hope you don't mind me rehearsing it again. But I want to just call to mind sort of the story that we're able to piece together from, um, from the letter of Philemon of what's happened, that in the city of Colossae, there's this wealthy man named Philemon. Um, and he had uh, a servant named Onesimus, who for whatever reason we don't know, he fled from Colossae, which is in Turkey. Um, he fled from Colossae and he flees to Rome. And in Rome, he encounters Paul, who previously had had a pastoral relationship with Philemon back home. Right? Philemon, um, Paul says, Philemon, you owe me everything, which I think is Paul's way of saying, I told you the gospel. Right? You learned about eternal life from me. Like, I'm your father in the Lord, um, is the phrase that Paul often uses. So Onesimus has run away from Colossae. He bumps into Paul, this old friend of his master. And Onesimus attends to Paul's needs in, in prison. He was probably on house arrest. And so uh, Onesimus is sort of you know, going to get food from the market and just helping support Paul. And in a sort of, I would say, unforeseen turn of events, Paul directs Onesimus to go back away from Rome, back to Colossae, back to the home of Philemon, uh, to return to that household. Paul sends back a bond servant to his master. Now, tragically, the letter of Philemon has been used in the history of this country as a justification for saying that, well, God supports slavery. I actually looked up sermons that have been preached within like a 30, 50 mile radius of here that use Philemon as a text for this purpose. I say this is a tragedy uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, first, because it's an exercise in comparing apples and oranges. What it meant to be a bond servant, sometimes in some translations it's translated slave, in the first century was a really different thing than what slavery looked like in this country in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Um, it was such a different thing that the translators of the translation that our bishops really suggest, which is the English Standard Version, render it as bond servant so that we don't confuse the two. Because in first century slavery, it was very easy, very easy to save up enough money to purchase freedom and that there were rights for freedmen and rights for slaves, legal rights that none of which uh, accompanied slavery in this country um, for the hundreds of years which it existed. So we can't take sort of because it's a similar kind of word, the teaching of Philemon, and apply it incidentally into the 17th century and say, well, look, this, this supports slavery. They're two different, two different things. Those preachers who did so were wrong. They just weren't reading the Bible well. It's also the case that to do that would be to do the very dangerous thing of constructing a teaching off of just one or two select passages of Scripture and not looking at the fuller witness. And this I want to pass on. I love Philemon because it's this tiny little book, it sits on one page of the Bible, unlike all the other letters of the New Testament that are like, okay, I'm going to address all the issues of the churches, it's this one very particular case, 
of what the gospel looks like in one very particular relationship. But when we dig in, we see that all manner of biblical witness and, and ways of understanding the Bible start to unfold before our eyes. So one of the things, for instance, that we see is this is not the only thing that the Bible says about slavery. We see in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul say, if you can get your freedom, do so. And we see in 1 Timothy 1 that there's this list of, Paul lists the most wicked things he can think of as people who um, are pushing themselves away from the kingdom of God. And he says, murderers, perjurers, those who practice homosexuality, and enslavers. It's like mentioned right there in the list. Right? So, so when we try and say, what does the Bible say about slavery? We can't just say, as the, some 19th century preachers did, well, in Philemon, I think it seems to support it. We have to look at the whole witness of the scripture. Those are two things. I think most significantly, though, to think that Philemon just reinforces sort of blindly this cultural norm um, is really to miss the amazing message of Philemon. It's to miss the forest for the trees. It's the message of Philemon that I want to dig into. Here's what I want to offer. I want to offer you a thesis, and then I want to try and defend it and hopefully convince you by the end. So the thesis is there's two ways of uh, misunderstanding Philemon. The first is to say, oh, it just reinforces our hierarch hierarchical institution. But what I also want to say is the second way to mistake it is to say, Christians are just required to overthrow any hierarchical institution in society. And what you'll see as you've sort of traveled around Christian land in America is people making one mistake or the other. Right? In the 19th century, there was this mistake to say, yes, this just reinforces kind of our social power structures. And now today, it's much more common to hear, oh, no, the Bible means we just need to overthrow them all, level every playing field, no hierarchies, nothing. Neither is actually the case. What Philemon shows, well, first of all, let me say this. Church history shows that earnest Christianity can flourish under any oppressive structure. What I love about the history of the saints is some of them were kings and some of them were slaves. Right? That you can be a saint under any circumstance. That's one of the great hopes of the gospel is that my life in God is not contingent on the pleasantness of my outward circumstance. It's also the case, though, that Christianity, um, it doesn't require the instant overthrow of a received hierarchical institution. It transforms it from the inside out. That's what we see in Philemon. Christianity doesn't reinforce or overthrow a hierarchy, it transforms it. So I do believe that when a society is fully Christian or is, or is influenced by Christianity as it could possibly be, there would be no slavery, absolutely. The trajectory of the scriptures is towards the undoing of slavery. But the scriptures are not calling for like a French revolution, like everybody just grab your swords and fight everybody else, right? It's not, that's not the message of the Bible. The world-changing message of Philemon is that these institutions can be transformed from the inside out, and that is how society is transformed. That's the beating heart of Philemon. It's in verse 16 and 17, which I want to read to you because it's just amazing. Um, Paul is saying to Philemon about Onesimus, take Onesimus back, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you'd receive me. Right? So do you see like the, the number of things Paul's stacking on there? Not just as a bondservant, as a brother. Not just as a brother, a beloved brother. Because you might think, well, I hate one of my brothers, right? No, as a beloved brother. In fact, 
How would you receive me, Apostle Paul? That's how you should receive him, right? as your partner, your collaborator, your equal. So I think, you know, it doesn't, we don't see what happened um, later this. We do know that Onesimus becomes the third bishop of Ephesus, that he has this wonderful life of ministry in the church. But I really think from the letter that Onesimus did, in fact, go back to Philemon's house. And I actually think he probably resumed tasks that he was used to doing. Domestic tasks, helping with the kids and the food and the shopping. I really believe that the structure there was in some, was in some ways still there, but the relationship that Philemon had with Onesimus was radically different. Radically different. No longer was it, well, I'm the boss and you're the bondservant, with this sort of oppressive use of the power. But even though the social statuses remain different, Onesimus returns to Philemon penniless. That's why Paul says, I'll pay for any debts he has. Philemon is still a wealthy householder. Right? They're of different social economic strata, but in Christ, everything's been leveled. Onesimus became a Christian with Paul. So Paul is saying, look, Philemon, Onesimus is now your brother. You are both now servants of God. You've both now been elevated to be sons of God. Before God, you are on equal footing, and that should affect how you treat him. Receive him like you'd receive me. The fact that both are Christians radically changes the interaction. Um, and here's what I think. I was thinking, as I was thinking about Philemon, I think if we could get in a time machine and go back to Philemon's house after Onesimus has come back, and we saw Onesimus washing dishes, you would never guess, I think, from watching, if you were a guest in Philemon's house, you'd never guess that Philemon was a bondservant. You just wouldn't guess that. You'd assume, he's like, oh, is that your cousin or your nephew or something? Because there would have been this warmth, this charity, this love between them. That in the same way, like, we, we have one of my dear friends from college, Maggie, has been with the house, and she just jumps in and washes dishes. Not because she's like some domestic worker in our house, she's our friend, and she helped out with dishes. I think that's what would characterize the flavor of the relationship between Onesimus and, and Philemon. You'd never guess that there was some sort of hierarchy between them, even though you probably still, like around town, Philemon was known as a householder and Onesimus was known as a bondservant. So if the hierarchical, if the hierarchical institution remained intact, this was no ordinary master-servant relationship. Do you see that in the scriptures? Like if, if Philemon took Paul at his word at all, this would be very different than the ordinary master-bond-servant relationship. They've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm laboring over all this, uh, not actually to speak about slavery. That's the immediate thing that needed clearing and speaking about. Um, thankfully, thanks be to God, that question was settled and closed in this country. Um, I believe the teaching of Philemon applies more broadly to any received hierarchical structure in our society. So you could apply it in several ways. Um, this idea that when uh, any structure is inhabited by a Christian, it gets transformed in its character. And the thing I want to talk about in particular this morning is Christian marriage. Philemon, I think, shows us the way forward through, in, in the question of marriage in this day and age, I think we see similar mistakes being made. There are some people saying, no, the Bible just reinforces this sort of animal instinct that men are stronger and therefore the boss in the marriage, and the Bible says yes. I'm, I'm caricaturing, but that's the direction of the argument. Or the other side, no, 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 we're made equal in Christ, there should just be absolutely no ordering of the relationship. No, nothing that looks anything like 
sort of what we might think of under the word hierarchy. And I think both of these are mistakes. I think Philemon shows us that the real way is to have the received institution transformed from the inside out. Christ neither reinforces nor abolishes traditional hierarchy. He transforms it. And here's kind of what, I, what motivates me to say this. In the godliest marriages I know, the ones I've gotten to witness where I'm like trying to copy things in my marriage to be like, wow, oh, man, I want to do it like that. The godliest marriages I've gotten to witness, and I'm thinking of like three couples in particular that I'm grateful to have learned from. When you're a guest in their house, you would never guess that the man is the head of the house. You'd never guess it because he's too busy serving his family, his wife, and his kids. Like, he's not sort of the boss in the corner. Like, you actually could mistake him for the domestic help before you mistake him for the head because he's serving his family. Um, I think an ordered marriage transformed by the gospel is what we need more of in the church today, right? There's this sort of battle over marriage that's talked about in the big political sphere. And as Christians, we're pretty good about saying, no, marriage is not that. But we'd strengthen the case so much better if we held up an instance of more instances of this is what Christian marriage looks like. And I would love if the church was full of Christian marriages where the husband was uh, the servant of his wife and of his family, the way Christ is the servant of his spouse, right? I came not to be served, but to serve. And that the hierarchy of having a head in the family would be so transformed by the gospel that you'd never guess that the Christian man was the head of the household in sort of just some blindly received way. I think we need to live into and seek to cultivate in our marriages, marriages that reflect this principle of Philemon, a transformed relationship. So um, I really believe this begins with husbands. So now I'm selecting every husband in the room and I'm talking to you as a fellow husband. I really think it starts with us. Husbands, we cannot, if we claim to be Bible Christians, just take what we think of as leadership and say, well, yes, that's what it means for me to be the head of the house. Right? We have to continually be returning to, well, what did the head do? Right? Christ is the head, we're the body. Right? How did he lead his church? Well, that's how I should lead in my family. And I know most of you, probably all of you, have heard sermons at one point on that husbands should be servants. Um, so I want to be very particular about the area where I struggle the most. Uh, and maybe there's some affinity for you. I'm fine with the idea in the abstract of, oh yeah, I'm supposed to serve my family. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Um, where I find it much harder is to serve when I'm called to serve rather than when I'd like to, and how and by what process. That's kind of where the rubber meets the road in my family. It's like, I'm fine with serving Carrie in the abstract after I've done my hobbies and I've gotten a good lift in and I've, you know, it's like, no. I have carried this out now, I need to offer to help now. That's what a real servant would do. They wouldn't say, well, on my timetable, as the head of the home, right? <laughs> They'd serve when they're called. And in the process, too, I think, um, as a man, I think I participate in the great flaw of men that we all think we are God's gift to process and logistics. Like, no, I know the best way to accomplish this. Um, <laughs> I'll take that as the laughter of recognition from some of the women, if, even if the men aren't willing to wear the hat. But I think to say, well, you know, I would have done it this other way, but that's how you want it done? Sure, I'll do it that way, right? That would be like the response of a real servant. Say, yeah, that's not, I'll do it how you'd like it to be done on your timetable, sure, right? That's very hard for me. That's sort of a growth edge for me that I, I have, I'm praying for God 
to give me a softer heart, a more listening ear, to say, yeah, okay, that's, that's how I try and be a servant to my, to my wife and to my family. Um, I think if it, the, it begins with that way, wives have stuff to do in a Christian marriage as well, but if the husbands get this right, I think the rest kind of domino effect works pretty well. Um, so I encourage you husbands to seek to hold up Christian marriage, not just as an idea in a political battle, but in your own household, a marriage that looks more like this, right? A received hierarchical relationship that follows the way of Philemon and Onesimus. Not a bondservant, more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, to follow the way of Christ, who doesn't treat us like servants, right? That's every gospel sort of moral application is based on because this is how God is treating us, right? He, he would have every right to say, I've forgiven you everything, now you know, polish the shoes of the universe forever, right? No, no, come sit up at the Father's table. You, you know, you're, I no longer call you servants, but friends sons, right? He's transformed our relationship with him. If you look at other religions before Christianity, non-Christian religions around the world, they are very servile. It's, okay, we'll, we'll put some money on the altar and hopefully God doesn't strike us down, you know? That's not Christianity. Right? The great message of the gospel is that, no, no, you've been invited to the table as adopted sons and daughters, right? And accordingly, you would not take any received or power you've received from worldly structures and abuse it. You would let it be transformed by what God has done to you by treating anyone that would be sort of in the eyes of the world beneath you um, as your equal because they are your equal in Christ Jesus. I even think this applies to kids. Um, Lucy, you probably won't remember this, but I am. Um, it's something that strikes me all the time that kids are our nearest neighbors. Right? And when God says, love your neighbors yourself, that also means the kids. Like, what I want in my fleshy sense is kids who just sort of obey everything and when they're older, do more dishes. Um, <laughs> but actually, I'm called, to, I mean, I'm called to be the father, to absolutely have rules of morality and guided instruction and discipline, absolutely. But I'm also called to serve them. Um, and are they sort of like the lowest members of society? Yeah. And I should be their servant because we're all equal in Christ Jesus. Uh, so it transforms everything. He who is the head became a servant, and because he became a servant, he was honored by God with the name that is above every other name. Amen.